I would like to welcome up my friend and one of our pastors, Sarah Anderson. All right, good morning. How you guys doing? Good? All right, we're going to talk this morning about Jesus and the cross and the implications of that because it's almost Easter. It's almost Holy Week. Next week is Palm Sunday. That's Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that kicks off Holy Week with his the Last Supper, his betrayal, his crucifixion. And then two Sundays from now, two weeks from now, Easter, his resurrection. So I think it's important to kind of focus our attention on Jesus as we approach this time. So my goal today is to leave you with a renewed sense of wonder and awe at Jesus, his sacrifice, and the Father's intricately good plan. Why? Well... Wonder and awe is the beginning of worship, right? If we have wonder and awe of God or of Jesus or of the Holy Spirit, then we can worship more intimately and more fully, and it brings us closer to the Father. So turn with me or scroll with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. All right, so let's set the scene. Jesus has been going through three years of his ministry at this point. He's traveling with his disciples, and they're going to Jerusalem. We're heading to a climax here. Everything's going to climax in Jerusalem for the Holy Week. Tension has been mounting between Jesus and the religious officials of the day. It's been getting a lot more tense as time passes. More and more followers are starting to follow Jesus. They just want to get a glimpse of him. So there's all these crowds forming around him. And it's almost Passover. So Jerusalem is going to be packed with people who are coming into the city just for this special Jewish holiday. So the tension is mounting. Now we have the benefit of hindsight, and we can look back and we can say, well, yeah, the climax was almost there. But even for those that were living it, the tension was mounting at this point. So Jesus is going along. He has his 12 disciples. And he pulls the 12 aside, away from the big group, and he predicts his death. Now, for the disciples, they did not understand it. They could not get it. Because their mindset, their worldview, was we are going to Jerusalem. We're going to take over. This is going to be awesome. He's the Messiah. We're going to take over. And then he predicts his death. And he doesn't just predict it, like, nicely. It's kind of in gory detail. He tells about how he's going to be humiliated, how he's going to be spit on. It's not really good, right? And... Jesus does this, I think, and this is actually the third time that he predicts his death, just in Luke. He predicts his death three times in Luke. This is the third time, and he does it in the most detail this time. I think it's because the climax is coming. 
Jesus knows we're coming towards the end. And he knows his disciples aren't going to get it. He knows they're not going to get it this time. They didn't get it the last two times. And they're not going to get it when he does die. It's going to take them a while. Because of that worldview that he's going to conquer, that they have. But he knows that they're going to need this. They're going to need to look back and say, wait a second, he told us this was going to happen. And then they're going to be able to have some context and some comfort and some hope in those days following his crucifixion before it all becomes clear. Jesus is a compassionate guy. He loves his disciples. He wants to prepare their hearts. And you know, in the face of it, Jesus is brave. He's determined. He's resolute. I don't know about you, but I really don't like to think about how I'm going to die. Right? Like, is it going to be quick? Is it going to be painful? Is it going to be long and drawn out? Is it going to happen, like, suddenly where I have no idea it's coming? Like, how am I going to die? That, I don't like to think about it. It scares me. And I think it scares most of us. This death is scary because of this mystery. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. And, I mean, we know it's going to be good and we'll go to heaven and all of that. But there's still this mystery of death. Well, I think it's even scarier that Jesus actually does know how he's going to die. He knows when, and he knows how. And he knows it's going to be brutal. It's not going to be good. It's not going to be quick and painless. That's even scarier, in my opinion. But even in the face of that, he's brave. He's going to Jerusalem. He knows what's waiting for him there. And he's still going. He's going to do it. And he's taking the time to comfort his disciples and to give them the context and the hope. So, how does Jesus know what's coming? Well, it says in Acts 2.23, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The cross was predetermined and predecided. Now, Jesus knew the details, and I think some people would say he knew the details because he was God. Well, he is God. Jesus was 100% God. But I think the real answer is that Jesus was a human. Jesus was 100% human, filled with the Holy Spirit, and in communion with God the Father. And because he had the Holy Spirit inside of him, he was able to know these details. See, Jesus was supposed to be our example. He wasn't, we're not supposed to look at him and say, oh, well, Jesus was God, of course he could heal people. Well, Jesus was God, of course he could prophesy. We're supposed to look at Jesus as an example of being a human filled with the Holy Spirit in communion with God the Father so that we know how we can live as 100% humans filled with the Holy Spirit in communion with God the Father and how we can go about our lives. Jesus was our example of that. And this is a confusing thing. I mean, he's 100% God, he's 100% human. But it tells us in Philippians 2, 7 that he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He made the conscious choice not to operate out of his deity. To operate as a human being filled with the Holy Spirit. So he knows because he's in communion with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was a perfect man, so he was able to hear perfectly from God. 
And that's something we can all aspire to, is hearing more perfectly from the Father. But beyond that, Jesus knew the scriptures. Luke 18, it says, everything that is said by the prophets will be fulfilled. Well, how do you know what the prophets said if you don't know the scriptures? Jesus took part of his limited time here on earth to study scripture and to know scripture. Okay, if Jesus took time to read scripture, how much more do I have to take time to read scripture? He was in perfect communion with the Holy Spirit and with God the Father, and he still read the scripture. I need to be in my Bible, guys. It's just, it's imperative that we're in our Bible. So, okay, so Jesus reads the scripture, he reads all of these prophecies that are made about the Messiah, and then I think they're confirmed for him through the Holy Spirit that's living inside of him. And he says they're all going to be fulfilled. Well, how many are there? Well, there's different schools of thought. I did some research this past week. Some people say there are 300 messianic prophecies. One guy says there's 456 messianic prophecies. It just depends on what you classify as actually being a prophecy and actually about the Messiah, and people have different opinions about that. So we're just going to say there's a lot. Okay, That's going to be our number for today, a lot. So I found this quote on Bible.org that talks about just 25 of the Old Testament prophecies that deal with Jesus' crucifixion, his betrayal, his trial, his death, and his burial. So just the things surrounding his crucifixion. They say that these prophecies were uttered by many different voices and over a period of 500 years, yet they were all fulfilled within 24 hours on the day that he died for the sins of the world. So you have 500 years worth of prophecies uttered by many different voices, and then within 24 hours, they're all fulfilled, these 25 prophecies. That kind of blows the mind, right? Wonder and awe. And Jesus, being 100% human, he didn't have control over these prophecies being fulfilled. Remember, he kind of didn't operate out of his deity while he was being 100% human. So Jesus, being 100% tiny human baby inside of Mary's womb, he couldn't decide that he's going to be born in Bethlehem if he's 100% human, right? And that was one of the prophecies about the Messiah, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Well, he didn't have control over that. He didn't have control over Judas betraying him. He didn't like whisper to him and say, hey, Judas, you want to betray me tonight? You know, he didn't orchestrate that. He didn't tell the Roman guards, hey, could you spit on me now? Hey, how about you beat me? He didn't, he didn't have control over that. He didn't orchestrate all of these. And a lot of the prophecies about his death and burial were executed by Romans, by Gentiles. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know that they were fulfilling the prophecies. They did it unknowingly. So what are the chances of all of these prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus? That's the question I was asking. I was curious. So, there was a professor who wanted to know as well. And so he had 12 classes of students. He had like 600 students. And he decided to take just eight messianic prophecies and determine the probability that they would be fulfilled by one man. So, for instance, the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They looked at the population of Bethlehem at the time the prophecy was made. 
through to the present day compared to the global population at the time the prophecy was made through to the present day. And then they came up with a conservative probability that a man would be born in Bethlehem. Okay? I think the number they came up with for that time period was one out of 300,000 men would be born in Bethlehem. And with each of the prophecies, they argued and came to a consensus so that even the most skeptical student in the group agreed that it was a fair number. Then the professor took all of the numbers and he made them more conservative. Then they took their findings to the American Scientific Affiliate. No idea really what that is, but it sounds good. And had them check their work. Okay, so here's what they found. Eight prophecies, the chance of one man fulfilling eight of the messianic prophecies is one out of ten to the 17th power. Okay, Google helped me. That number is called 100 quadrillion. Okay, one with 17 zeros. It's a lot of zeros, right? But how big is that number? Well, here's a picture. That brownish colored cube is one quadrillion pennies. U.S. pennies. Abraham Lincoln. Lots of Abraham Lincolns up there. Okay? That's one quadrillion pennies. You can see on the, what side is that? Right side, there's a football field. That little green thing, that's a football field. You can see the Washington Monument, the Sears Tower. That's one quadrillion pennies. Take a hundred of those cubes full of pennies, mark one of them with a Sharpie, mix them all up, blindfold someone, and tell them to pick the penny out. That's the chance that one man would fulfill the eight messianic prophecies. Okay? Wonder and awe, right? That's amazing. So, the same professor did it again with 48 prophecies. Again, how many prophecies are there? We don't really know. A lot. 300, 400, who knows? But, took 48 prophecies. The chance of one man fulfilling 48 of the messianic prophecies was one out of 10 to the 157th power. Okay? That's 157 zeros. Now, Google was not as much help with this. It's too big for Google, apparently. But I found a number close to it that had 153 zeros. So a smaller number. That number's called one quinquagintillion. Learning something new today. That number is described as so insanely huge that dividing the observable universe into this many portions would make each portion unimaginably small. Okay, so take the whole observable universe, divide it up into one quinquagintillion, and actually more than that, pieces, and each piece you'd need a microscope. Stir that whole mess up. Pick it out. That's the chance of one man fulfilling 48 messianic prophecies. That's incredible to me. So this professor, his conclusion... Oh, and remember, this was a conservative probability. His conclusion, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact. Proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. 
wonder and awe. Are we getting there? All right, back to verse 31. It says that everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. We've looked a little bit at what was written by the prophets. We've looked at how it was fulfilled. But why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? What meaning does Son of Man hold? Well, Son of Man was the title that Jesus chose for himself. He calls himself the Son of Man over 80 times between the four Gospels. Other people call him the Son of God, which he was. They call him the Son of David, which he was. They call him the Messiah, which he was. They call him Lord, which he was. But he reserves for himself this title of Son of Man. So that seems to me like there's something important there that we should know. Okay? So son of man in that culture was a term that was kind of ambiguous. Nobody really knew what it meant. Some people thought that it might refer to a messianic figure. Other people really didn't know. And son of could just be a descriptor of what a person is. Okay? So son of man, it highlights Jesus' humanity. That he is a man. He's a human. That's, he's 100% human and he wants to highlight that fact to us that he is a man. But beyond that, it points to the fact that he had all of humanity wrapped up in himself. So there's this concept in theology of a representative human. So Adam was a representative human. He was the first human. And when he sinned, it affected all of humanity. Every person in this room, every person that's ever lived, was affected by the choice that Adam and Eve made to bring sin into the world. He was a representative human. We were all wrapped up in Adam and his choices. Jesus is sometimes called the second Adam because he's the next representative human. And all of humanity is wrapped up inside of him. And the choices that Jesus made to go to the cross affects all of humanity as well. So Jesus is the son of man. He is the son of humanity. Okay, humanity is wrapped up in him. But beyond that, oh, and John 12, 32. Jesus talks about this. But when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men or all of humanity to myself. Okay, so he recognizes he's drawing all of humanity to himself. But beyond that, there are prophecies in the Old Testament that use this exact phrase. Again, Jesus knew scripture. He spent time studying. He spent time learning. We read in Daniel 7. In my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority Glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's what Jesus chose as his title Son of Man. He's going to come on the clouds, bringing all authority, all glory, all dominion with him. He's the son of man. In Mark 14.62, during Jesus' trials, the high priest asks Jesus, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? 
I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He clearly connects calling himself the Son of Man with Daniel 7. It's not just coincidence, it's not just chance, it's not like he said, oh, son of man, that sounds cool, maybe I'll call myself that. He clearly connects it back to Daniel 7, to coming on the clouds. Revelation, when it talks about the end times, it also describes the son of man coming on the clouds and bringing glory. Now, there's a whole lot that we could talk about with son of man. And it sounds wonderful and it sounds glorious. And it is who Jesus is. He is the son of man. But there's another side to Jesus. He suffers. And he chooses to suffer. He's our servant. Sometimes Jesus is called the suffering servant. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve. He wants to be the servant and he came to suffer. This is one of the messianic prophecies that was fulfilled. Lots of them were about the the Messiah suffering. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus references this in Luke 18, he talks about how he's going to be spit on, how he's going to be flogged, how he's going to be killed. Jesus knows part of his destiny is to suffer. He knows that he's the son of man, but he knows that he's going to suffer and serve in that way. Here's where some of the wonder and awe comes in for me at the intricateness, that's not a word, intricacy of the father's plan. Okay? Stick with me. This might take a minute, but we'll get there and it will be cool. Psalm 2 is known as the messianic psalm. And it says, you are my son, today I have become your father. So all of Psalm 2 talks about the future Messiah. And it says, you are my son, today I have become your father. And then, Isaiah 42 is known as one of the servant passages. Isaiah 42, 1. Look at my servant, whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one, who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. So hold these two things in your, in your mind. Psalm 2, Messianic Psalm, this is my son. And then Isaiah 42, the servant. Now let's think to Jesus' baptism. First time Jesus, he's baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit comes on him and then he is launched into ministry. It starts his three years of ministry says in Luke, the heavens, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The father's voice at Jesus' baptism calls out this destiny of being the Messiah, of being the son of man from Psalm 2, the messianic psalm. And it calls out his destiny to be the servant. From Isaiah 42. This blew my mind when I learned it. I have heard about Jesus' baptism from the time I was a little girl in Sunday school. This is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I've heard that and heard that and heard that. And I didn't learn until this past year that those two phrases came from these passages. These passages that Jesus would have known. 
So an example from our context, our time, if I say to you guys, oh, say, can you see? What am I referencing? Star Spangled Banner, National Anthem, Go USA, right? And then if I said to you, dashing through the snow, what am I talking about? Sleigh ride, Christmas, jingle bells. Okay, those phrases are familiar to you because you know the passages, the poems, the songs really, really well. These would have been familiar to Jesus because he knew the scripture. And so the father calls down to everyone else. It just sounds kind of nice. You know, this is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But for Jesus, I think it had a deeper meaning for him. It called out these seemingly conflicting roles of being the Messiah, being the son of man, and being the suffering servant. It called out both of those roles, these roles that don't seem like they could be filled by the same person. But Jesus is so amazing, he's so good, that he takes both of those roles and he just weaves them together seamlessly to be the savior of the world. And it was part of the Father's plan. He calls it out at his baptism. It wasn't unplanned. Can we ever fully understand the cross and the meaning of the cross? I don't think we can. There's new things that we can learn all of the time. The cross is the turning point of history. There's so much to learn there. There's always going to be new layers. There's always going to be new revelation that we can learn about the cross and Jesus and his sacrifice. But I got to tell you, several years ago, I had a really bad attitude about the cross. And I, I was, I've been coming to this church for a long time, and so I would come to church and I would sit, and it seemed like every Sunday Van would talk about the cross. And I was like, seriously? <laughs> We have other things to talk about, man. Come on. And then it seemed like every Sunday, Tyler would sing songs about the cross. And honestly, I was bored. And I had this really bad attitude about the cross. And I was like, yeah, I've heard it. I've been saved since I was a little girl. I don't need to hear about the cross anymore. I don't need to learn about it. There's other things I can learn about. Oh, the pride that I had. And God is so gentle. He's so gentle with us. I was sitting over here, and I'm sure Van was talking about the cross again, and (laughs) the Father just broke my heart for his sacrifice as a father for me and for Jesus' sacrifice for me. And he just broke my heart, and he took me one more layer deeper. And into the cross just a little bit more and I just wept. There's always something new to learn about the cross. And guys, God is so good, I wasn't even sitting there with a good heart posture of, please teach me, I want to know more about your cross, I want to know more about your love. He came and he found me in my pride, in my bad attitude, and wrecked me. Because he cares about us, he doesn't want to leave us there. He wants to take us deeper. You know, this might be the first Easter that's really going to have any meaning for you. Maybe it's your first Easter where you're following Jesus. And Easter's always been about egg hunts and chocolate bunnies and all of that. And that stuff is good. I love all of I have a bunny at my house. I love bunnies. But 
Press into Easter. Learn about it. Really soak in it this year. But maybe for some of you, this is your 50th Easter as a believer. And you feel a little weary. And you're kind of sliding into that attitude I had of, Easter again? Didn't we just do this? I want to encourage you to press in to Easter. Press into what the Father has for you. Press into the cross. Because he's going to meet you. If he met me in my bad attitude, he'll meet you in your good attitude. I promise. So why does the cross even matter? Right? That sounds a little blasphemous, actually. But why does it matter? Because it's the power of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The disciples demonstrated this verse in our passage in Luke 18. Jesus tells them, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to rise again, and the disciples could not understand it. It was foolishness for them, because they had not been saved. They were probably the humans that had the closest relationships with Jesus, and they didn't get it. Because Jesus hadn't died yet, he hadn't been resurrected yet, so they weren't saved. So the message of the cross was foolishness to them. It says in the message version that they couldn't make heads or tails of it. It didn't make any sense. The message of the cross is foolishness to the world. It doesn't make any sense to them. What do you mean God became man? What do you mean he agreed to die on a cross? What do you mean he rose back to life? That's foolish. That didn't happen. You're crazy if you believe that. And I just want to say one quinquagintillion, right? (laughs) But it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us that are saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. As soon as you believe in the message of the cross, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. And then you have the power of God, the power of the one who made the whole universe residing inside of your physical body. You have the power of God within you. It's the power of God to save you, to transform you, to get rid of your bad attitudes, to renew your mind, to change you into a person more like Jesus. Jesus who was 100% human, filled with the Holy Spirit and in communion with God the Father. The cross is the power of God. Now, I love the vineyard. I am a vineyard girl. I love our movement. Because the vineyard, we have these kind of twin ambitions. On one hand, we want to be biblically rooted and have a strong theological foundation. The vineyard is all about that. Know the Bible, have a strong theological foundation. But then on the other hand, we want to sit in the Holy Spirit's presence. We want to take the Holy Spirit's presence out into the world and we want to help spread the kingdom of God. We have a kingdom theology. I love that about the vineyard. And we see those twin ambitions playing out in Luke 18. Jesus takes his disciples, though they don't get it, though it's foolishness to them, he takes them deep into theology. And he shows them, this is from the prophets. It's going to be fulfilled. This is the kingdom. This is how it's going to happen. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be humiliated so that you guys don't have to be. And then I'm going to rise again. It's foolishness to them. But he takes them deep into theology. Guess what happens in verse 35? I like to think he didn't even take five steps before someone comes up to him and says, Jesus, heal me. And he says, what do you want? And the man says, I want to see. 
And Jesus says, okay, be healed. Your faith has healed you. Jesus roots himself, roots his disciples in this theology of the kingdom, of how this is all going to play out. And then the power of God goes out from him. That's how we are supposed to live. We are supposed to know the message of the cross, and we are supposed to live and operate out of the power of God. We shouldn't even take five steps out of this building until the power of God's just flowing out of us. That's how we're supposed to live, and that's what the vineyard movement stands for. That's why I love the vineyard. You know, I was talking with my brother this week, and he said, what are you going to preach on? And I told him, and it's like, you know, it's a little heavy. And I don't really know how to, like, bring it down and make it practical. And it did not take him long at all. And he said, well, it's the weight of living under expectation. Jesus lived under a lot of weight of expectation, 300, 400 prophecies that he knows are all going to be fulfilled through him. How did he manage the weight of that? You know, being knowing how you're going to die. We've already talked about how scary that is. How did he live under that? Well, because he had the Holy Spirit inside of him and because he knew his destiny. He was the son of man. He knew the end game. So he was able to live under the weight of those expectations. What expectations have been placed on you? Maybe you've had negative expectations placed on you your whole life. Oh, he's a screw-up. Oh, you're never going to amount to anything. Or even something kind of silly, like, oh, this is our oops baby. We didn't really want him. Or sometimes equally as heavy, positive expectation. You're going to change the world. I can't wait to see what you do. That can feel really, really heavy. But we don't have to live under the weight of anybody else's expectations. Those things that have been spoken over you, they don't have any power if you believe in the message of the cross because you have the power of God inside of you. We have been set free. It says that we have been set, for freedom you have been set free. You don't have to live under the weight of those expectations. How was Jesus brave enough as 100% human to go to the cross and face that destiny? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He knew the message of the cross, so he was filled with the power of God. You are filled with the power of God. You are free from other people's expectations of you. Because your destiny, the only expectation that matters is Jesus' expectation of you. His expectation of you is that you reign, that you conquer. He says that you will reign, you will conquer because you're in him. Because he's coming on the clouds with all authority, all glory, all dominion, and he has us with him. Romans 5.17 For if by the trespass of one man, Adam, representative human, death reigned, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace through the cross and the gift of righteousness through the cross reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So we have the representative human Adam that death reigns through and then the representative human Jesus that life reigns through. Take out all the commas in there and how much more will those reign in life? You are called to reign in life 
because you have the power of God inside of you. The message of the cross is the power of God. You know, the cross was always the intention. It wasn't a surprise. It was planned long ago. It was prophesied about long ago. And Jesus entered into it willingly for you. The cross is always new. It's never boring. I want to encourage you to press into it this Easter season because it is the power of God. We're going to take some time this morning to sit in wonder and awe of Jesus. We're going to worship him. It's going to be really, really good. But we can't just stay there in this place of wonder and awe. We have to go out. We have to take the power of God and we have to go out to our families, to our friends, to our schools, to our communities, to our workplace. We have to take the power of God with us when we leave here. So Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you that they are being saved by the power of God, that the power of God resides in them, that they are made new, that they live under the weight of your expectation. Jesus' name, amen. So, on a different note, <laughs> there's a silver or light gray Chrysler 200 with an engine running. So, I have the, the license plate is GMZ8656. If that's you, maybe go turn your car off. <laughs> so, we're going to move into time of worship. So first, we're going to collect our offering as a part of our worship. So if you're on the far left, if you could grab the basket under your chair and pass that down the row. You guys have been giving so generously, and we are so thankful for your generosity. It helps us to run all of the ministries that we have here at the church. So I thank you, Father, for these gifts. I thank you. I pray that you would multiply them and you would use them to bring the power of God to this city and this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So after the offering, Pastor has passed you by. You're free to stand. And you're welcome to sit anytime while we worship. You're also more than welcome to come up front to worship. Come on. And uh, if you like to dance, move around a lot, there's more room in the back for that. We don't, we're not trying to chase you off, but there's simply more room back there. Jordan. God from whom all blessings flow. 